What does the future of training and rehab look like? How do we continue to push the needle forward and find the extra 1% to 2% to give ourselves a competitive advantage or a longer life? Genetics are an untapped resource in the world of human performance. Today, former U.S. men's national soccer team fitness coach Danny Guzman is here to guide us towards the future of genetics, training, and rehab. Let's do this. Welcome to Finding Small Wins. My name is Adam Lyakino, and I am a physical therapist in the NBA and a former performance coach in Major League Soccer and the National Women's Soccer League. The purpose of this show is to have conversations that pull back the curtain on sports. You know, we're here to learn how we can upgrade our own health and performance and shed some light onto how industry leaders and experts are finding the small wins that help them along the way. Our conversation today is with Danny Guzman. Danny is a performance coach in the Southern California area who is someone I know is going to keep pushing the needle forward in human performance. Danny has had great success in his career so far as a member of two different MLS Cup championship teams, in addition to being the lead fitness coach for the U.S. men's national soccer team. Aside from consulting for professional soccer teams now, Danny has taken a step back from team sports and really puts an emphasis on upgrading how professional and youth soccer players are trained. Through his company, Guzman Performance, Danny takes the approach of individualized training, not only through position-specific demands, but incorporating insights gained from genetic testing, an area that I'm keen to continue to learn how we can further individualize training and rehab. Through 3x4 Genetics and an AI-powered company, GeneFit, Danny shares how we can begin to consider the implications of genetics into human performance. On a personal note, Danny is someone I really connect well with because he has a great perspective on life. His humility is palpable when you talk with him. And he has such a high care factor for his family and clients. You know, I'm excited for you to hear from him and learn how he is finding his own small wins. Now, let's jump into this conversation with Danny Guzman. Uh, today, I'm here downtown with Danny Guzman on LA Live. Uh, thanks for coming down here today, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to talk with you. It has been, it's been a minute since uh, we were able to catch up because we got to know each other pretty well working in soccer. So real curious, kind of what was your entry point into working pro sports? So I was working with Athletes Performance, which is now Team Exos uh, around the world. And I was just an intern trying to figure my way around sports. I was actually working with the NFL Combine, some MLB players, NBA players. And there was this job with the LA Galaxy 2. So for people that don't know, that's a second division soccer team. And I remember sitting in the staff room and the manager came in and said, hey, we've got this small role with the Galaxy 2. And none of the coaches wanted it. And I was an intern, like, trying to do something. I was like, I'll do it for free. And they were like, well, of course you will. You're an intern. <laughs> but I was like, yeah, I'll do it. So I jumped up there and just had a good interaction with the coaches. And I showed up every day, did it for free for a few hours, went back to my other duties. That turned into a part-time role, which was cool. And, man, I was probably making, like, 12 bucks an hour. But it didn't really matter because the experience was so valuable. The first team head shrink conditioning coach for the Galaxy ends up leaving for another job. And same thing, I was like, hey, I'll take this role because I knew that was my, my way to get in. And again, my manager and other managers were like, hey, we appreciate your enthusiasm, but it's just not going to happen. You have one year of experience, like no one just gets into pro sports like that. Well, the second team head coach went to bat for me with the first team head coach. And he was like, this is the guy you want, which I didn't know that before the interview. Interview was two minutes and he was basically like, the job's yours. So that was really my start starting spot into it. And all all that goes in that basically is that if there's these opportunities, don't worry about the money in the beginning. Just like go for it, work hard, and just be a good person. And I think things ended up working out. So that was my intro into pro sports with soccer. And it definitely started to work out too because you won an MLS Cup pretty early on too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So first year, I think I came in middle of 2014. And the results of the team didn't matter a whole much at that point for me because I was just trying to learn how can I best support the team. I didn't want to make a lot of changes. But yeah, they were kind of bottom of the table. And so I always tell my wife, like, the reason they won is because we started ascending from there. <laughs> and yeah, we won MLS Cup. The truth is they had really good players. And I was able to help guys stay healthy a little bit. So it played a small role. But that always helps out your first year to win a little championship ring. Oh, big time. And I remember because it was against us, too. Yeah. yeah I was like, and oh. you guys had a great season, too. Oh, phenomenal like, season. Jermaine Jones is crushing it. And Lee was out there. Yeah. Do we? And, and the, the crazy part was I like remember the game. Like, oh, I remember it was yesterday because... It was such a great game, too. Like, it was a great cup final. Yeah. And it ended up coming down to, I think, the last, like, three minutes. I'll never forget. One of our players went down, had to come, come off the field. So, you know how in soccer, it's like, oh, you don't sub, you don't sub an injured player. You wait to see if you can go back out. <laughs> and then as we're trying to figure that out, y'all, I think it was, uh, was it 
Robbie Keane. Yep. Robbie Keane comes down and scores, and it's like a minute left, and it's like the 119th minute. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. It was killer. It was, it was a emotional crusher. Yeah. Oh, I never think about that side too. I mean, you're right. Crazy game, two one. Like championship being anything can happen, but you guys had an incredible season, and it's like, you know, it could have gone either way. But yeah, obviously we were able to enjoy it a little bit more that night. <laughs> it was <laughs> yeah. fun. And then yeah, and then from there you kind of took a nice little jump to the U.S. Men's National Team, which has always been an yeah. aspiration of mine. I just think it's such a cool space to live in. I think being able to travel the world while you get to work too. So how was that? From like, let's just say from an experience perspective, going from a club team to a, the national team, how was similar, different? How did that work for you? So I think it depends on probably what role you have. So I'll just speak from a coaching perspective. But you basically, as a, as a strength conditioning coach, performance coach, you enjoy working with players on a daily basis. Like how can we best improve your performance for the next match or in a few, a few months coming down the road or on a day-to-day basis? How can we get you back to baseline when it comes to recovery? And with a national team, you're only with the players for about 10 to 15 days for a camp. And then you might not see them for six to eight weeks. During that six to eight weeks is a lot of digging around, calling their coaches, calling the players and just seeing like what's going on. And so I think you take much more of a managerial role and it's just different. And I realized early on, you have to find different ways to reach certain athletes. Not everyone texts. Few guys like talk on the phone, but it could be on Instagram or TikTok or Twitter. You just find whatever they'll talk to you about and you just want to know like, how are you doing? So I think if you can set up a system where guys can have this feedback loop they just feel comfortable sharing information. That also takes time. I went into the final year of qualifying, which was different. And so we had to establish trust extremely quickly. And so on the road, I wasn't hanging out with the staff as much, which is a whole other story. I was hanging out with the players as much as I could because I knew my value to the coach was, was through them. You know, how could I understand how did they respond to, uh, you know, a, a massive game and have to play three days later? Or what was their routine? What do they like to do? So there was a lot of digging around that my job really became more of like, how can I be a friend to these guys, but also still an authority of like, here's what we're going to do to get you along the road. Just an interesting year. A lot of, a lot of growth definitely happened. You, you talk about building trust because that's, that's a topic that's come up in our, in our space quite a bit. Even other past guests have come on the show and building trust, creating trust. It's always a unique journey to get there. How did you build trust with your players? I think there's two things. I think number one is you have to show your expertise in some way. All the times guys are going to say like, hey, Adam, how can I like improve my hip mobility? Or like, I just want to feel better. You're like, what's the end goal? Well, I want a ball tonight. Okay, how can we get you there? And you show them a little program. You say, here's a few things you can do, right? That builds little amounts of trust. I think the other thing that goes with expertise is empathy. Can you actually connect with a guy and, and say, hey, like, I, I understand you're in the middle of the season, how this feels, your body's not feeling great. You know, like, like tell me about where you're at emotionally, uh, mentally, physically, and like kind of connects with the guys there. And I think if you can give them expertise and empathy, then trust starts to build a lot quicker. I know everyone says like trust takes forever to build, which I think, you know, trust is a constantly developing thing. But if you show them expertise and empathy, that's going to help that trust process a lot quicker, in my opinion. I get that. It's, 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 it's great insight because... If you don't have that, if you don't have any of those factors, whether it be empathy, trust, expertise, right? You have to at least know your stuff. Yeah. Right? If you don't know definitely. your stuff, they'll still seek out that bullshit real quick. Yeah. Like, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, hey, you're, you're a good dude, man, but <laughs> I, I got to go find someone else to look after my yeah, career. Like, definitely. I get that. But I think it's an underrated quality to also acknowledge, hey, like, you got to know your stuff. And at the same time, like, you do it very well. You're a very personal dude. So your ability to connect with people doesn't surprise me whatsoever. And the fact that you decided to do that rather than try and maybe spend some more time with others in the organization goes to show that why you had success in that space. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely like, there's a like pros and cons to it, you know, like your staff is that's, that's your teammate, that's your family. And so you've got to find ways to connect to them, but there's just a lot of opportunities where I thought me playing cards with these guys or me going to walk to somewhere to get food with these guys, is going to be more valuable than sitting around and talking about theoretically what we might do, you know, in two days time where we can have that meeting earlier the next morning. So it's just, Pros and cons. There's some stuff I might have done differently, but ultimately that's what helped me gain trust of the players. Uh, speaking on that, what would have been something you would have done differently? So I, I think the way that it was set up, you come in with a coaching staff is a lot different than the organization hiring you and say, I want you to be you know, the head fitness coach for the national team. So Bruce Arena brought me in with his staff. And so that's who I had to make sure that I was giving my uh, expertise to when he would say, hey, where are the players at? What are we thinking about training? What kind of fitness do we want to add for these guys or, or what is the performance plan? 
And so I've got to spend a lot of time with them. Well, what that means practically is sometimes we fly into a new country and you and I know what happens. Like everyone helps unload the bags and everyone, like on the, the medical performance staff, we're all in it together. But sometimes if the head coach is like, we're not having a meeting right now. It's, you know, like everyone else is like, we're moving bags, where's Daniel? And I would always feel so bad. And I'm like, guys, just leave my bags. I will get the bags. Like, I don't want you doing the work for me. But that stuff builds up, you know, and that's tough. And I wish I would have communicated that better. But ultimately, my job is to be with the head coach. And if that means sitting in a meeting for three hours, looking at film and answering two questions in three hours, that's what my job is. But no one always knows what everyone else is doing. And so I think I could have done a better job of communicating that as I look back on it. And it's just like, it's, it's crazy. Like, you just don't know this stuff, you know, it's, and who's going to teach you? You just have to learn by doing sometimes. So I just try to stay optimistic, keep a smile and just, you know, be kind to people as much as I could. It's very true that you can prepare for some of those situations. And like you, you did the best you could at the time. It's easy 2020 hindsight. What could I have done better? What do I wish I could have communicated more? I have no doubt that you handled that situation without any issues. Talking like MLS, the national team, right? You and I, there's a little bit of differences there, right? You're, again, you're working for a club versus, you know, 10 months out of the year versus a national team, training camps periodically throughout the year, different countries, right? How do you prepare a team for an MLS Cup versus a World Cup qualifier? Yeah, it's a good question. The World Cup qualifiers, you're looking at different environmental changes. You don't actually know the roster. And so I think the best thing you can do is set up the system. What does the coach want to play? What's that style? And understanding that first five days, which is probably your biggest lead into the first game, there's not a whole lot of fitness you can do, but there's a lot of assessments. And so when it comes to qualifiers, you're doing a lot of monitoring and assessing the beginning to say, is this guy fit for what the coach wants or do we need to slip somebody else in? And obviously I'm just giving more of a, a physical perspective to say, yeah, their readiness might be at this, this stage for them, right? They're 80 out of 100. That, that might be good enough for on that day, you know, depending on the talent of the guy. With an MLS Cup, in my mind, it's almost like the story of two seasons because you can be the last place team to get into the playoffs and you could just peak and ride into the sunset. We've seen a few teams do that over the past few years. But I think what you want to do is you want to try and look at MLS, the season from a development standpoint. You know, like we have preseason, you're trying to get guys back up to, to snuff. And then in the middle of the summer, you have a bunch of these games or tournaments. And you know, there's a massive volume, volume coming. So how do you prepare for that? two months before that to get to that point. And then after the summer, you kind of have this, you know, stable ride of games once a week kind of thing, unless you're still in a tournament. And then you got to, you know, prep for the playoffs to come through. So I think you have to understand the waves of how season goes and you just have so much more control on a day-to-day basis. Now that doesn't even consider the fact that the national team guys we're talking about, their schedule is different because they might, like their preseason might be a national team camp and then they come in late and then they're going to play some games, go back to the national team. And so they have this totally different schedule that doesn't always line with the team schedule. And you've got to find ways to almost keep those guys fresh. I mean, it's exhausting. Like you work in the NBA, you're traveling all the time. These guys are playing and, and traveling. And I think that's a, a whole nother set of stress that we have to figure out a way to manage. And it's different for every single guy. Like if you have a guy that plays, we had a guy of LAFC play in Korea. Well, his travel for national teams games were a whole lot different than some of the U.S. guys or our Mexican players. And I think there's just, you know, it's funny, like people love talking about how they take complex systems and make it simple. But pro sports is like so chaotic and random that if you don't have just a base system in place, you're going to be guessing all the time. And so I think that takes time. You understand the organization, understand the players, understand yourself. How do I best operate? And I think that's what kind of makes a difference from an MLS season versus the national team, which is we've got 14 days here. We're going to go to altitude. How do we prep for that? For me, it's almost a little bit more cut and dry there where you're just assessing players when they get into camp. There's a lot going on there. Yeah. That's a, that's a lot to <laughs> it's a lot to consider when you like you mentioned the travel. You mentioned I, I didn't even consider the fact that you gotta think about guys being in a different time, like a, a timeline, right? Player that may there's January national camp, coming to February MLS camp, has to go to qualifiers in March or April, or it's Gold Cup in the summer, right? I, I, you really do have probably kind of two trajectories within your roster, speaking from the MLS side of, hey, how do I manage all of this? Yeah. So then from like a preparation perspective, we know that in soccer, the fitness coach, the strength coach, choose your title, is heavily involved with the planning of, say, let's say a practice. Because like you said, hey, how much load should they be doing? How much sprinting should we be doing? How did you approach the physical aspect as a fitness performance coach within the MLS squad? Yeah, I think that's an interesting one because 
you have to, and this is going to be counterintuitive, people think, you have to actually rely on other people and you can't just do it all yourself. And the reason why I say that is because, um, so in this last cycle in the national team, Steve Toshin and Darcy Norman were running the performance side for the U.S. men's national team. They become my teammates in a sense. And a lot of the times when people think about the national teams, they honestly, they're like, well, those guys, they do whatever they want, we'll do whatever we want. And what I realized early on, and especially being with the national team, is that's not what's going to be most productive for the player. And in fact, the best thing I can do is find a good relationship with those guys. So like, let's take a few steps back. When I was with the national team, instead of me designing this program and saying, okay, guys, every time you come in, here's the strength we're doing, here's the fitness we're doing, I took a completely different approach. I would talk to every single club performance coach and say, is your guy on a strength plan, yes or no? If he is, I will run him through that, whatever it is. So if I'm running 20 different strength programs, that's fine. That's my job, actually, to keep them on something consistent. If I just do my own thing for 10 days, number one, the guys might have some muscle damage they don't need. It's going to be a different stress, and they might not even like it, you know? But if I can give them something that's familiar and just think, okay, this is an extension of your club, and what I'm doing in the national team is making sure, uh, you know, how is your nutrition on, on the road? Like, is it foods that you actually like to eat? Is it actually supporting your performance? And are we doing programs that you're familiar with, right? There's a few guys where they come in open and they say, hey, we'd like, I just want some new ideas. Can you talk to my coach about that? And so I always make sure to think like, we are sharing these, these players. And I would tell them ahead of time, here's something I want to try with the player, simple mobility routine. What do you think about that? When you approach it that way, for the most time, the, the club coaches are, are cool. Like, yeah, it's great. Where I've seen this like interruptive programming for these athletes and for the clubs when they're like, hey, we're going to do this no matter what. Or send me all this data when we really know like we're going to do whatever we want in the national team. Like we're, we're going to run our, our game style a certain way. And I just think there's like the more honest conversations you can have and say, look, we're willing to give you whatever you want. Here's what they've been doing well. Is there a way that we can find a middle ground? That's what found me the most successful with the national team. And I think a lot of the club teams felt a little more comfortable with me. And then when the players came in, they just felt like I'm, I have my own plan that I'm still doing and everyone's on the same page. So it's, I think it's that relationship to understand, like, these guys are my teammates now. Like, I, I'm the head fitness coach for the national team. Now I have, like, 80 to 100 teammates around the world, and I have to talk to all of them every single month to make sure that we're keeping these players in the right, on the right path. And that eventually, the closer you get towards the end of the season, you know kind of your man of 30-man roster who you're going to have, and it's like, it gets a lot easier. But, man, in the beginning, it's like, I'm just talking on the phone for like eight hours a day. And I'm like, I'm a strength coach. What am I doing right now? So much conversation, but it's just, uh, I mean, it's like a whole podcast course book in itself that I need to reflect on my thoughts and like look back and say, what did I write in my, my like notebook, my diaries back in those days? It's really incredible. What do you think were some of the things you wrote down? Uh, I would say in the beginning, like feelings of being overwhelmed, underprepared, you know, like I, I got this massive role and as a strength coach, I knew exactly what I need to do. Like I know how to prepare players for the demands of the game, but consuming the right data and asking players the right questions, I think was something that I just wasn't prepared for. And so the first camp was just like this, you know, this massive shock to me, like, okay, how can I best work within the team dynamics? There's some people that come on the road that have been doing this for 20 years and it's just the way they've always done it. But then there's a few things that I want to bring on that is going to support the players. And, and how do we have those conversations? I think the biggest thing, like I said before, is probably like, where do you spend your time? So like you're on the road, it's not a nine to five. You're kind of available at all times. So if a player calls you at 10 p.m., which we've got a shared player, Jermaine Jones, that he'd be like, hey, can I lift at 930 at night? I'm not going to say no, it's my job. And it was actually kind of fun. It's just me and him in the gym. And so we go lift from like 930 to 1030. But I would tell people, like, you're not really off when you're, when you're on the road. You're just on 24-7. And the athletic trainers and physios are on even more because if someone's sick or someone has an issue, you might be treating them at midnight. That's just what they have to do. And so there's so many dynamics where, like, you have to have a respect for what that staff's been doing. The kit men are, like, up all night long washing clothes, and they sleep during the day. And it's just, like, you know, like what are like small things you can do? I mean, your podcast called like, like, you know, finding the small wins. There's got to be small wins you can give people throughout the day that kind of keep them going and understanding like my schedule is different than yours. But I think like human nature, people get jealous and people get frustrated. Like I've been working these many, this many hours and stuff like that. And you're like, well, you know, that's your job. This is my job. Let's find like, how can I support you in that? So the number one question I think you could ask if you work with a national team is how can I help? 
no matter what it is. And sometimes you ask the kit, man, how can I help? And they're like, hey, man, would you help me get these, these clothes out to the players today? Like, yeah, let's do it. You know, like there is time on the road to do that kind of stuff. So when I approach that question to a lot of the staff and players, just how can I help? It's just funny. Like everyone kind of relaxes. That's the empathy side where they're like, okay, this guy's in it for me, like not just for himself. So that's, that's just, uh, and like that just comes from good mentorship from like my parents and stuff that have instilled that in me. So thankful for that. Yeah, you definitely have some uh, good teachers in your parents there. Yeah. How would you, thankful. speaking on the small wins and trying to get, you know, find them for the players, how would you define a small win? How would I define a small win for a player, you're saying? Uh, how would you, for yourself, define a small win? Yeah, it's a good point. I think, like, I would have to think through things that are valuable to me. So, like, um, words of affirmation are powerful. So, if I do something and someone says thank you or they're like, hey, I really appreciate that, that's a small win for me. Um, on the other side, if I do something for someone that makes them feel better, and, like, people think fitness coach, like, okay, you make them, like, like running or lifting, they feel good. That's actually not it. It's like, can I have a conversation with you where I'm just listening or I'm like making you laugh? You know, like the, the human side of what we do, those are small wins. Like if I can do more of those every day, then I feel successful. So like in the warm up, one thing that I try and do every warm up, with the exception of like we're serious for a game is like, can I make the players laugh at some point or can I make one of them smile? And like, you know, you see players some days like they have, they have life issues and stuff and going on the road's not easy and guys just get stressed. And it's like, hey, if I can take their mind off that, just for five seconds, like tell them a joke or like do something silly. Those, those are the small ones that I think not only do I enjoy, but like it helps people out getting through the life stuff. So those are probably, that's probably the answer I'd go with. Do you have, do you have your go-to joke? A go-to joke? Yeah. Like how would you get them uh, to smile? It, it depends on the, the time of year. Like if it's <laughs> fantasy football, it's just all banter. Okay. You know, like the soccer, you know, they love fantasy football. They love, they love that kind of like gambling and, and talking trash to each other. So it just depends on the time of year. Other than that, uh, I'm just like honest with the guys. Like, you know, we talk about in soccer, like, oh, you got hit by a sniper, right? Someone just like tripping for no reason. And it's like just crushing a guy just a little bit, give him a little joke there. So like, it's more like the brother side of me with my two little brothers. Like we have this tough love where we like to make fun of each other and push each other around a little bit. And that's like how we show our appreciation. So there's a lot of that. It's probably my go-to stuff. I'm not a comedian by any means. So I don't know if I have any jokes lined up. Now I've got the dad jokes, but I've got to work on those. Uh, I mean, so you got three little ones. You got to have the dad jokes by now. Uh, I know. I've got a long way to go. They're uh, already getting a little annoyed at some of my jokes. So that's fine. <laughs> uh, so, you know, speaking of like trying to find small wins for yourself, you know, one thing I'm curious about having worked at such a high level with the national team, also winning MLS Cups, right? How did you help motivate the athletes you worked with? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, you know, you always start by asking them like what's important to them. And they start saying, oh, I want to win these championships. And I'm like, no, like as, a, like as a human, outside of your job, what's important to you? And then they take a step back. Like, no one's ever asked me that. I'm like, well, I want to know everything about you. Like, like if I were to look at a poster board and it had your face in the middle and you showed me the things you were passionate about, what would I see? And you just see like the wheels start turning. And I think that uh, really helps with like the relationship building side because it's someone that cares more than just about like, you're not an X and O just on paper, or like you're not just a number on our salary cap, but you're actually someone that gives value besides just your job. Like, you know, we're not just human doings, we're human beings. And so when I ask questions like that, like, you know, I really like fashion. That's why like I try and wear some of this stuff or I'm a huge like shoe junkie or whatever. I like, I love buying old shoes and building them up or a, a few players like we both know Lee, like great chess player, had no idea, had a chess board and he just schooled all of us. I could never beat Lee in a million years. He's so good. But you find these things out about the guys and you're like, you're not just an amazing athlete on the field. You've got these other passions. And I think like that's probably the route that I would go with most guys in that first conversation to understand like what's important to them. Speaking on Lee, super competitive, <laughs> that man. And then that, it wasn't just chess. And like, and I'm not going to, we're going to use like Lee was an example and shout out Lee. Like we, we love you, brother. Uh, it wasn't just that. Like, and it's not just him. Like one thing that I've noticed just working in this space, you have, you have, you have these guys are just and gals are just so competitive at mm -hmm. such a high level with even the smallest thing. And it's like, they can't lose. Like even like the littlest thing, like they'll just, I oh, know another one. And like, it's like, it was the chess game. Like we had a ping pong, we had a ping pong table in our locker room one year. And I mean, every day after practice, like the coaching staff's leaving, but the players are still playing oh, ping yeah. pong. She's like, Definitely. no, like I'm not losing to him today. Like he beat me like five times yesterday. <laughs> I'm not losing to him. And it's just incredible to hear like that, 
that level of competitiveness, but also like on you to find those other things that they do enjoy because then ultimately when you live in this space for so much of them and spend so much time, you can't always talk about the job. Yeah, right? exactly. Like that's, that's the, that's the, that's the easy part. I, I mean, think we spend more time with the athletes than we do our families sometimes the year, you know? Yeah. And it's like, these are people that they're not just coworkers. <clears throat> they do kind of become family in a bit. Mm-hmm. And some athletes are not like that. It is more of like a, this is a job kind of thing. But with the ones that you spend so much time with, you can't just talk about the sport all. In fact, they don't want to talk about it sometimes. Like I know, like I had a bad shooting percentage tonight. I don't want to talk about it, but like you can talk about other stuff and it's more just like, you know, what are good conversations that we can have that are just enjoyable? Like sometimes I'm sure you got a guy on the table and it's like an hour of work. I'm just going to talk about the game, right? Like let's, let's focus on other things and stuff. So yeah, you got to find a way to just, uh, I don't know, treat them as humans and not just as objects of like, these, these great athletes. We know they're great athletes. You know, what else is there behind that? Yeah. And they're the human behind the athletes. Important. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> so coming back to kind of some of the things you're doing now, right? We talked a lot about your time in team sports, but over recent times you've shifted into the private space, still had, dipping your toes in a team sport now. How can you, you know, one thing that you're passionate about, and I see you doing a great job out there on social, is targeting positional skill work as part of physical preparation. Because a lot of what we think for physical preparation is, oh, what am I going to do in the gym? How fast do I got to run? But now from like, and I think this is the sport of soccer and rugby does this really well, is how do you tie in the physical components within the the needs of position, within tactics, right? Tactical periodization is a a popular term. So with what you're doing right now, how have you shifted your training to target more positional skill work? So I would say the evolution of my career started as a strength conditioning coach. So I guess let's take a step back. I was a college athlete, college soccer, four years. That was my passion. Realized I wasn't good enough to go pro, which is probably most of us. And then we're like, what's next? So I went into strength conditioning because I, I had a good mentor that taught me you can actually make people faster. Where my whole life I was told you can't teach speed. And then one day guys like, yeah, you can. And actually I'll show you how to do it. And he showed me how to make someone faster. And I was like, whoa, like, paradigm shift. This is cool. I knew you can get stronger, but you can make someone faster. That's awesome. And looking back, I was like, I should have known that, but you're just told like, you can't teach speed all the time. It's just natural. So I started as a strength coach, like become a master of that skill, right? Can you like teach guys how to move well, how to progressively overload, how to, uh, I guess like find movements that are specific to them, all that kind of stuff. Right. And you learn how to periodize training. And then when I watch in the field, I'm like, how can I connect what I'm doing in the weight room to the field side? And you start doing some rehabs, which you've done a lot of, right? You do field rehab and like, okay, I've got to solve this problem. Here's the demands of the sport and the demands of your position. How can I bridge that gap? And the more I started to do that, I realized, you know what? I think the evolution of what I can do to separate myself is come up with this like positional specific conditioning. That's, that's not just like, oh, we're going to go do a bunch of sprints and throw a ball in there. It's like, what do you actually do on the field? as for, so for my guys as a soccer player, but then like, what do you do as an outside back? And then outside of that, like the next step is you individually, like not, not just an outside back, but how do you play that position? And so if I can look at that and then reverse engineer backwards and say, okay, here's the components that make that position successful. And here's the components that make you successful. So for like an outside player, it might be high speed running. That is just like a a blanket thing that they need to have. They need to have the capacity to do a lot of high-speed running. And so like we might train max velocity movement and we might find ways that we can load someone. But I can honestly have a guy run from 18 to 18 and get 100 meters of high-speed running. But is that specific to the position? Probably not. So now I look at density and I, I break it down more. Okay, well, you probably do 1,000 meters of high-speed running, but you get that over 25 sprints on average in a game. So now we look at the density and how you get that. And then across those 25 sprints, I'll go deeper and say, well, how much of that was in like 30 meters and how that was the 100 meters? And you realize the 100 meters was very few, like that rarely happens. And then as you're going from there, you see, okay, well, how are you operating that in attack and on defense? And you just keep on breaking these layers down. And the more that I've been able to do that, I can actually create a framework for every single position so that once I get to know the athlete, I can say, okay, I know what your position requires in the game and this formation, uh, against this type of, I, I guess, opposite tactics. But then you as an individual, here's how we're going to best prepare you for that. And when I started doing that really more at LAFC, that's when I just found incredible results. And so I took that into the private side of my own business with younger kids. 
who typically just get run into the ground. It's like conditioning until you're just so tired and there's just no purpose. And so I realized it wasn't just the athletes, but the coaches at the youth level that I could provide some value to and say, here's why we want to train this. And here's how we can individualize with or without tech. And when you start having conversations like that, the opportunity in youth soccer is massive for that. So that's just more of a, I guess, like a side passion that I'm hoping I continue to educate young coaches. And um, we can talk about later. I started a newsletter completely for free, just so I can help out youth coaches and athletes to understand like there, there's a whole nother level to this conditioning side and strength side that you should be considering. Let's find a way to put it into your system. So that I could talk about this for like hours and hours, but I just think it's so fascinating and you can actually help a lot of young athletes and coaches in their development of players, which is cool. What's one of the questions you get most frequently from some of the coaches? Uh, I guess the main question is like, how do I incorporate this? They're like, look, I, I'm really good at coaching tactics and, and teaching technical work, but like, I'm not a speed coach. How do I do this? And I try and like, so like I give them that kind of that pitch. I'm like, well, let's take a step back. Exposure is really important. So why don't you start just by adding in some uh, like very specific dosage of sprinting or change direction work, not just running doggies, not just doing this. Everyone loves like eight to 18 and jog back <laughs> and like do it 20 times. But I'm like, let's understand like, what do you actually need from this position and how can we make your athletes better? And so I'd say like, okay, one of the number one things I saw in pro sports over 10 years was that 15 meter accelerations are always done in games and they're rarely done in training. When you look at GPS, like that range is, is rarely hit. And so I thought, okay, if it's happening in games, we've got to find ways to train that because you just may not get it in the training week if you're not playing 11 v 11, or if you do, that's one exposure. And so I take that back and say like, you know, you can put two cones 12 yards apart at the end of a warm up and have them do five sprints or five accelerations. That's a whole other thing. Like, not everything's a sprint. What's an acceleration in the coaching that? But in essence, they get that where I'm like, okay, let's break it down. Start with exposure. Don't worry about the coaching side too much. And then eventually we can talk about like movement shapes and stuff like that. But really, I think it's a little overwhelming. Like, what do I do? And so by giving little ideas of like, let's expose them to this or deceleration, it doesn't have to be 100%. There's a lot of deceleration happens at 50%, like setting your feet. But most kids don't want to set their feet. And so when they go to defend someone, the attacker makes one cut and they just fly by. So there's things that we can add that can be simple and actually help them. And I think by adding those little ideas helps them out a lot. I want to highlight one thing that you referred to was these coaches, the youth coaches don't necessarily understand what you do. Right. And I just want to highlight that that doesn't just happen at the youth level. Like in my experience, <laughs> in my experience like that yeah. happens across across the whole continuum of coaching, right? Like I coached in college, you played college. Mm -hmm. uh, we both worked in a professional setting and you can't fault someone for what they don't know. And at the same time, most, in my experience, most coaches understand the sport really, really well from a tactical or technical aspect. And in this country, the physical component is often lost in either the teaching aspect or the planning purposes. And that's where positions in our industry come into space. It's like, hey, here's how I can help you. But I just want to highlight for any, any coach that's out there, it doesn't just exist at the youth level. Like it is across all spectrums. And that's why these spaces that you and I live in exist because our job is to help elevate that industry to then help them better mm -hmm periodize their program, better help them plan a practice, better help, hey, I know you're thinking about tomorrow's game, but we're about to play three games and four nights after this. Like we have to <laughs> we have to start considering that today, not just the next game. So like it, it, it comes full circle across all spectrums. Yeah, that's a good point. And you know what's interesting is that, um, so to say this delicately, but like I, I never really hide anything. Pro soccer, they are pushing, you know, the A license and the pro license because they want to educate more coaches to continue to coach at a higher level, which is great. But they've been including over the past, I don't know, maybe it's five plus years, a sports science part. Mm. And what happens all the time is those coaches, they have no background in sports science. They go to guys like us and they're like, hey, can you help me write this? And you're like, are they like they're learning a little bit, but eventually when they have the job, what are they going to do? They're going to come to guys like us and say, hey, here's what I need. Here's how I want to play. And so Although I've never taken one of those courses, I've definitely walked through side by side with a coach and say, hey, here's the things you should consider. Here's why we do it this way. And it's good for the education standpoint and for our relationship. But um, I always think like the end goal is they need to hire an expert like us. They're not going to have the head coach running the like physical periodization of the fitness side. Although some of them are, getting, are really smart at it. You know, like just a shout out like Bob Bradley. He's one of the smartest coaches I've ever worked with. And he's such a hard worker 
on all fronts where he'll send me research articles like, hey, here's what I saw in sprint performance. Like, what do you think about this? Are we doing this? Are we considering this? And he reads everything. And so there are coaches like that. He might be one of the rare ones. But I think, you know, there's this happy medium of like digging your toes in, but then also saying, hey, I got to rely on a guy like this to help take our team to where we want to go, the style of play that I want. So just super interesting stuff. Curious in your opinion on this. How much should a sport coach know about the physical aspect of the game? So, well, I think they should have some sort of baseline knowledge. You know, like, what is the demand I'm putting on my players? That way they don't go into the case of, like, we're going to do 100 sprints in one day because I think that's what's right. Or, like, in the gym, even worse. You know, like, we're going to do, like, like timed Nordics. I don't know why that's a thing in most team sports. Like, 30 seconds of Nordic straight, and I'm like, 30 seconds? Like, I, I can do three Nordics to four Nordics with my guys, and then that's it. But they're, like, 30 seconds on the clock. And maybe it's just, like, different countries and stuff like that. But I think they should have a baseline knowledge. The same way where I think if you have a successful business, and, like, I love using this example because I, I want to have my own sandwich shop one day. But, I'm like, you own a sandwich shop, and if you don't know how to make the sandwich at all or the components that go into it, is that sandwich going to taste very good? You're just relying on someone you just hired who you're supposed to be teaching to make the sandwich, but it's like, if you don't know the kind of the components that go into it, probably not going to taste very good in my opinion. So I think there's got to be some level of understanding of like, what are the components that go into the demands of my, my athletes on that game? Like you said, we're going to have three games the next four nights. If you're just like tunnel vision on that one game, well then that's not going to set you up for probably game three. And you got to think through that stuff. And that probably starts by asking questions. You know, guys like us, like I consider you an expert in the field asking questions well, what could we possibly expect by game three? You know this guy on an individual level. Like, what is like? how does he do when we get closer to that last game? How can I best utilize him if I want to play him every single night? And so then you can have some, you know, conversation back and forth. And I just think that's the perspective to go. So sandwich making is huge. Learn how to make a sandwich. <laughs> if you don't know how to cook, you're in trouble. What's your go-to sandwich? Is that tuna sandwich. 100% tuna Really? Sandwich. Tuna? Yeah. Okay. I never would have thought that was like a first choice. Why? Oh my gosh. Why? Like, I mean, part of it is like, Growing up with my dad, he would always make the best tuna sandwiches, and it was kind of nostalgic. Okay. And then, like, Fast and the Furious 1, when Paul Walker gets a tuna sandwich every day, I, like, took that narrative upon myself. So in college, I was like, any sandwich, I got a tuna sandwich. That's my go-to. To now, where I don't eat that every day because I don't want to have, you know, like, mercury poisoning or something like that, <laughs> or like an overdose. So, like, I've learned to monitor my tuna intake. But... I just think I've got a fascination with coming up with the best tuna sandwich in the world. So one day I will open up a sandwich shop and like the tuna will be the go-to and I hopefully I do it justice. My take on it. <laughs> I look forward to that day that happens. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Another component that you're, <clears throat> you're passionate about right now in your work is tying in genetics into the field of human performance. And that is, in our industry, it's been a big push, right? You have all these at-home kits that you can get your genetic testing from performance, health, ancestry. Like, it's a big push in our society, right? But you're in a space where you're able to work with a specific company that is not only tying in genetics, but also incorporating physical load, incorporating a little bit more blood analysis. So with the company you're working with right now, can you kind of explain to us who they are and what your role is with them and then how that ties into kind of your practical aspect of your work? So I work for a company called 3X4 Genetics. They're a hardcore science and genetic company that has 25 plus years of research behind it. They're a healthcare company first, and they actually help to educate different practitioners, doctors, dietitians around the world about nutrigenomics. So that is where um, the founder, Yael Jaffe, kind of created her methodology and her business. And they basically, um, I mean, they... They're experts in that field with the geneticists that they work with. And what 3X4 Genetics realized was that there was a gap in the market of using your genetics for performance. And so when they saw this, basically, they said, okay, we have these lead geneticists. Uh, they're both iron women, like very impressive athletes. And they were like, we know our genetics. Like we have PhD, double PhDs in genetics and, and different aspects of science. And we also train all the time. So we know based off our genetics, what we need for training. But they're like, I've got to have it like something easier that I can, I can visualize this in an algorithm I can put it in. Well, there was nothing like that on the market. And so uh, what I'm working now is a project called GeneFit that was the embodiment of that idea. 
And GeneFit is the world's first team and athlete optimization software that takes your genetics with any training wearable. So you think like as simple as like a Garmin watch, right? Taking GPS and heart rate. We can take your genetics with the data that comes from this physical tracking to get more insight. And so people are like, okay, that's that's a little bit complex that's out there. Like, like what are we doing now? What we do before and what are we doing now? So when you and I work in a team setting, we might look at, we'll take GPS in soccer, for example. We look at how much someone runs, uh, like total distance, their high speed running, their sprints, X cells, D cells. And then we try and periodize off of that to say, okay, if we want them to be prepared for the game in seven days, here's the plan we're going to do each day to, to do that. We're going to dose this much distance, 5K on this day, 6K on this day, high speed running here. And we, we start to build this map out. What we don't know is we don't know how that training load actually affects them from a genetic standpoint. We become really good at practitioners. And really what we're doing is we be, we've become very good at um, our guesswork. We know what not to do and what to do for the most part. But like, we don't know how that affects your muscle tissue to a full scope. You know, from your standpoint, you can actually fill tissues. You can fill how they're responding to load and training. And so you're a master of that craft. We're looking at um, the genetic size. We can say, like for you, Adam, with uh, your genetic pathways, you might be more predisposed to uh, post-training muscle damage than I am. And if you know that, you might have a different recovery strategy than I might have because I might struggle with more uh, post-training inflammation. And so it just keeps on getting way more specific and bringing insights into how we can best prepare players for what's to come. So for example, on the post-training inflammation side, for me, uh, like, well, let's start with this. In the world, we would say spinach and avocados are generally healthy, right? Well, for me, that that actually promotes a lot of inflammation and histamine in my body. And I'm already predisposed to a high level of inflammation. I've got some gut issues. And so I would be training. And if I train kind of hard, I naturally have post-training inflammation. I'm like, I'm going to eat healthy now. I'm going to have a tuna sandwich with spinach and avocado. I'm like, okay, like gluten, avocado, and um, spinach, like throwing it all in there. And then I'm having these stomach issues. And I'm like, what's going on? But I worked through my 3X4 genetics blueprint. And I talked to a practitioner like, hey, you're probably having a lot of high histamine foods because you have a baseline high level of inflammation. And if you think about our athletes now, if we're training our athletes or we're exposing them to high games, three three games in four days, whatever it might be, that inflammation is rising and we're trying to help them come back to a baseline. But if we are giving them foods that are also promoting that inflammation, we're actually not treating the root cause. You know, we're like, we're not taking this upstream approach. We're just treating symptoms down here. And so there's a whole nother level of specificity we can get to on a personalized level by understanding someone's genetics. That's just, that's just one thing we look at. So GeneFit takes your genetics and any training wearable you can think of to best quantify, take that data with our, with our AI and machine learning to best quantify, uh, you know, different tissue, tissue risk scores, you know, like how is your muscle tissue responding to that training load or how is your connective tissue or how is your bone tissue? so that you can make more specific recovery and training recommendations throughout the season. So super fascinating stuff. I'm I'm not a genetic expert by any means, just an enthusiast, but it's definitely like changed my whole mind where I definitely believe like this is Moneyball 3.0, you know? And it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, late adopters that are like, I'm not sure about this. It's a little bit too far-fetched, but I have no doubt in my mind it's the future of sports. In the next 10 years, everyone's going to be doing it. So I'm hopeful that on the front end that we can uh, have some good conversations with some early adopters and forward thinkers, which is kind of cool. So many thoughts come to mind. Yeah. Just because there, you, said, you said so many good things that are filling the gaps of what we currently have. I'll just say in my practice, right? There's things, okay, yes, we talk about individualized programming, but now most of the individualized programming is talking about external factors, okay? Things that you measure on the table, performance testing that you do, or statistics that you get from the game. Everything is like external, extrinsic. Now you're talking about, hey, how can we flip that 180 and go individualized from an intrinsic factor? And I think there's some high quality practitioners out there that are doing deep dives on blood analysis, right? Doing deep dives on, hey, like, what is, how is your body responding to certain stimuli that we put into your body, so on and so forth from a blood. But now you're talking from a genetic perspective. So the first question that I have is, <clears throat> how do you take, because it, it, it's it's a lot of information from the genetics. I've, I've done the three by four. Yeah. And there's a lot of information that comes from it. How do you take the information and make 
one action step going forward? What's the first step you take when it comes to incorporating genetic testing into a performance program? So the first thing, well, let me back up and start with a formula. Cause you did say like, we're looking at all these training environment stuff, whether it's the game load or maybe it's like a nutritional intervention, anything that falls under training. The formula that we operate under right now is that training environment. Can we, can we influence and modify training load, nutrition, sleep, environmental stress, all that kind of stuff in order to influence performance. But genetics account for more than 50% of your performance. And so if we're not looking at the G side, the genetic side, we're missing half the equation. So to your question of like, what like the first thing you do to make something that's a- actionable, how can I actually make, make a change? If I am, we'll start with the nutrition thing, right? What is almost every athlete uses an ergogenic aid is caffeine. Right, a bunch of athletes take it before a game, whatever whatever they might do. In the soccer world, 30 minutes before everyone goes in, they take their caffeine, whether it's like a, a buzzer or something, they take your caffeine pill, however they want to take it, so that'll hit them. Well, depending on what your genetics say, you might have a certain genetic variation for caffeine where you are a slow responder to caffeine, the way it's metabolized. And if that's you and it doesn't hit you for 90 minutes to two hours after you've consumed it. Well, if you take it 30 minutes before, it's not going to hit you till end of the game, if not after the game. And then you're saying, oh, I can't sleep. I'm all wired. It's like, yeah, you're getting a caffeine drip late at night, <laughs> you know, where some guys on the opposite side, they're a fast responder. So 30 minutes before will help them out. Not to mention, like, depending on the variation you have from what I've learned, it could induce, uh, it could be an anxiety risk from caffeine. There could be a sleep disturbance risk. And the research is there, but without knowing your genetics, you can't get as deep. So you could take that one insight of many with caffeine and say, okay, you should take your caffeine 90 minutes before I should take mine 30. And on top of that, I might need another hit at halftime because I'm metabolizing it so quickly. Not to mention like if I'm at a sleep disturbance risk to base on my genetics, then I have to have another conversation with a dietitian saying, is this going to be the right performance aid for me for this match based on what we have upcoming? And then you might make some decisions like, well, we can, we can find something different. So that's one actionable thing that I would use right there from a nutritional standpoint. Obviously, you can go a lot deeper. I mentioned the spinach or the avocado. It doesn't mean I never eat that stuff, but I have to know, you know, when my inflammation is going up and down and where that histamine is affecting. Interesting stuff. It's very interesting stuff. Now, how about from a uh, like performance training perspective? You talk about so far, we talk a lot about more so, let's say, food sensitivities, uh, predisposition to certain responses to certain ergogenic aids. Yeah. Um, how about from a training aspect? How can the genetics influence what we do to train an athlete or prepare an athlete for an event. So this is where it's going to challenge people a lot. And a lot of people are like, there's just no way. And I was kind of like this when I first heard it. So based on your genetics, you can understand these injury pathways. And no one wants to know if they're more prone to injury, right? But by having the insight, you can actually make an action. So I can only talk about myself. For me personally, I have an injury pathway in my connective tissue where I am more prone to ACL tears and Achilles tendon tears as a baseline. I've never torn either, you know, hopefully I never do. But the way that uh, my genetic code is written, I'm at more of a risk of injury to that, to those locations. So I don't just, you know, get all sad, like, ah, like I'm not gonna have an athletic career. I can't, no, that's not what happens. As a strength coach, I say, well, we know exactly what can support those tissues, like quality strength training and really specific plyometric training. And if we can, if we can do that along with uh, like very appropriate load prescription, we can keep you in a safe and healthy spot by knowing that. Now that could be, you know, you could be at more risk for muscle strains or some some bone stress fracture stuff, right? Um, for some athletes, they don't have those issues. It's like your risk of injury is actually not very high at all from a baseline standpoint. So we talked about genetics plus training environment equals performance. No matter what your genetics say, we still know that the training side has a huge effect. So now on the training side, we go to experts like you and I, where we say, okay, here's the things you should be doing based off of that. So if it's in the weight room and we know that someone's got potential connective tissue, um, I should say like a high predisposition for an injury there. Well, maybe at a younger age, we're saying, here's the things we're going to focus on because it's going to serve you better. Now you might say, well, we want everyone to do ACL prevention. Yeah, that, that could be true. But if there's a low hanging fruit for someone that you know, that might be an issue for them. You're going to attack that a lot more specifically. That's just in the weight room. That, that also carries onto the field when you're talking about proper training load prescription. Younger coaches or college athletes that are just like, you're going to go sprint this many times. It's like, well, if you look at all your athletes, there's some that can really handle that with probably 
a lot less risk and others where as a baseline, you know, that's not, th- that's putting them at a, a risk we don't need to put them at, right? And so I think there's a huge opportunity on the injury side. Um, and we're not, we haven't talked about like female soccer players and, and ACLs and what's going on there, but there's a huge opportunity to understand the athlete better and make very specific training recommendations from that standpoint. I love the, the individualization aspect for it, but also seeing from not only, let's say, the dining room table to then the weight room to then the training aspect on the field. The, I'm going to be devil's advocate here and ask this question from a pragmatist perspective. You have one fitness coach, assistant fitness coach, you have 26 players out there, and then you have your coaching staff. From a camaraderie perspective or the expectations for the team, how do you justify some players doing some of that conditioning or training and some players not? Because what I can imagine the conversation being, well, hey, you're saying my genetics, um, predisp- I don't handle this stress well. I need an extra day. But then this player over here saying, no, like you can handle it. So you can do this. And I just imagine there being maybe, I don't want to say an internal battle, but almost like a side eye of he or she's doing that, but I'm not having to do that. How is yeah. that situation? How would you approach that situation? So I think it comes back to the fact of like, the genetics is supposed to give more insight and and benefit to what you're already doing now. So if you don't look at genetics now and you're not personalizing training already, that's probably one thing you can look at. So like world before genetics, we might have some guys and we might look at our list and say, okay, we have got 10 guys that did not hit their uh, high-speed running for the day. That means that you've got these three guys that got to do seven sprints. This guy has to do one. And then the other six might have somewhere between, you know, four to five. So they're already doing something different. I've been in those situations where right away they're like, I worked really hard. Why am I doing this? To what you tell them again, this isn't a consequence. We're trying to prepare you for what you're doing. That guy plays center midfield. He does way less high-speed running than you. You play outside winger. You do almost two and a half times the high-speed running he does. By doing this, we're going to best prepare you for the demands at the end of the the weekend. So the genetics just plays a deeper role to where you can give more insight to say like, here's why we're doing that. But then on top of that, Here's how we're combining everything else into it. So it comes back to like that trust and expertise and empathy. If you can explain the process of why and give them the expertise side and then have the empathy from, you know, if it's not in that moment or if it's off the field where you build a relationship, that conversation is a lot easier. So then when you bring genetics into the, into the game, you can say, okay, remember why we're doing this? Well, here's why we're going to make a few tweaks to the plan because now we have deeper insight. So it comes back to like the system that you have. And if you don't have a high trust environment, yeah, it's probably not the right trip for you, to be honest. That sounds that brings me to like my next point I wanted to ask you, because genetics is a tricky subject, even from a ethical uh, perspective. I think yeah. there's some hesitation and reservations for people in general to provide their DNA that then sits in a data bank that potentially could be utilized for other purposes. So from an eth- like that's one area of caution. But one thing I want to get your perspective of from a pra- pragmatic side, a practical perspective, a coach what is something to be cautious of from the jump so that way we don't make a mistake early on and lose that trust? Yeah, it's a good point. Well, I would say the first thing is that like your genetics is, is extremely personal to you, right? So like almost 8 billion people in the world, there's no one with your genetics, right? It's very hyper-personalized. With that being said, the conversations um, around genetics have to be something where people are giving you um, truly like permission to look at their genetics, so like if you do your your genetic testing, I can't just see your genetics, right? You would have to say, hey, Daniel, you want to take a look at this? Give me your opinion. But yeah, sure. Take a look and see what we can do. But I think that's where, um, like we talked about the ethics of it, you've got to be really careful. We're not just going around spreading people's genetics. The one question I always get, because I'm thinking about this right now, is the athletes are always asking me, are you going to clone me in 10 years? I'm like, no, we're not even, <laughs> we're not even like keeping the exact DNA. We're just getting into our algorithm. Then we're discarding of that. But I also tell them like, there's so many laws around genetic testing and and how you actually house the data. And if you just text, email, send the company right away and say, I want my DNA wiped from uh, your database, it's gone. You know, like you have such authority around your information, your genetics, that uh, people don't always know that, like the control they have. There's been some companies that I won't name that have sold people's um, genetic information, which is a big no-no for a lot of money and they're lo- they've lost trust in the market. From 3x4 Genetics, we will never sell your data. We're never gonna uh, use it for our, our own benefit, right? The whole purpose is to bring better health and wellness insights for you as an individual, rather than these you know, 
blanket statements and I guess like general nutrition recommendations around like this diet is best for you. And I always think, well, we actually don't know that. You know, like you got to do some DNA testing. The blood analysis is huge because that moment in time that you can see um, like what are my blood markers saying about the diet changes that I've made or the lifestyle changes I've made, am I on the right path? So it's, I think people need to understand they have a lot more authority around their data than they, than they probably think. And there's no cloning going on, by the way. At least I hope not. There's not uh, Santa Claus 2 where they make the, uh, the second Santa Claus. Great movie, by the way. <laughs> Definitely not. That was kind of creepy. Yeah. <laughs> but kind of summarize this, this topic on uh, using genetics. Yeah, I, go, I go get my three by four, right? I submit my information to, to GeneFit. Starting tomorrow, what's the first step I should take? towards incorporating that gene genetic information into my health and performance? Yeah, so when we take it to um, different enterprises, because that's what GeneFit's made for right now, the biggest thing is education. So like you just said, what's the first thing I can do? Well, the first thing you're going to do is not like make an assumption by yourself. You're going to have a team of a geneticist or a sports science performance coach like myself that's going to help walk you through that. You're not alone. So no matter what you do, just understand there is, uh, this is really more of a shoulder to shoulder approach. You're not just going to get this report. I mean, in fact, you can't even get the report without doing a consultation. So the first thing you're going to do is you're going to talk to me about it. You're going to tell them the why. Here's what's important to me, brain health. You know, like I don't sleep very well. How are we going to attack that? And then you're going to walk with that practitioner like you would with any other medical professional about what you should be doing. Gotcha. So it's all about the people you surround yourself with to exactly. read that information. A team of teams approach. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So this, I think the, I may have the answer to this question already, but I kind of want to get your take on it is, you know, we, we talked a lot about pro sports, talked a lot about athletes. Um, but we also know that this day and age, there is a strong market for those who just want to upgrade their own health and performance, right? Kind of take their control and ownership over how they're living their life. So with the experience you've had in international soccer, domestic soccer, and now working in the field of genetics, if someone was, was looking for advice from you on how to upgrade their health and performance, what advice would you have for them? I've had this talk a lot with younger kids, but now I've expanded it to really any age. It's not going to discriminate. Is I think everyone should have their board of directors. And what I mean by that is imagine you're sitting at a table and you are going to bring in a, a nutritional intervention or a training intervention. Like You're like, hey, I want to solve this problem and my problem is uh, weight loss, right? Like I want to get to this weight. What you shouldn't do is try and solve that by yourself because that can be dangerous, right? You may not be an expert. You might harm your body. What you should do is you bring that to a board of advisor, a board of directors that you have that can speak into your life. So for me, that could be uh, my mom and dad have a seat at the table. So if I look at this table and I bring something into my life, they're the ones that are going to help me think about it. I've got a friend that I'm really close with. My wife is going to be there. I might have my pastor, right? Um, if I want to buy a new car, I bring this and say, hey, here's what I'm thinking. For most people, they don't ever have these board of advisors. They have friends, right? But this is a table that you got to think about that any of these big decisions you have in your life, you are bringing it to them, people you trust from different disciplines, whatever it might be, so that you can make these decisions. So I always tell my pro athletes, I tell my execs, I tell my friends, like, who's in your board of advisors? You know, And you have to work through that throughout, throughout the years. Now, one thing I always tell them is you'll realize who should not have a seat at the table. Right. Sometimes there's someone on social media we follow who still could be a good person, but they don't know you. But they're saying, oh, go take this supplement or I do a cold bath every single morning at 30 degrees. And you're like, I have to do a cold bath now. And I'm like, well, maybe that's not the right fit for you. It could be good. But are you bringing that to your board of advisors and saying, here's what I want to bring into my life and actually getting counsel about what I should be doing? So then you can make a decision because you don't know if your board of advisors are going to say, you know what, that that's not the right thing for you. You know, don't go buy that car right now. That is not a wise decision, right? Um, so I guess that's my advice is like, who are those people? And those seat at the table is, is really special. Don't just give it up to anybody. And even for some people, that might be someone you respect and you ask them, you know, I, I want to have this trusted group of advisors in my life. Are you willing to be one? You know, and some people don't have the time and you, you shouldn't give them the seat at the table. You say, you know, thanks for your advice. I'm still going to call you from time to time but you don't deserve a seat at this table. And so when I tell it to young kids, their eyes just go like this. Because I ask them, who's at your table? And like, oh, this pro NBA athlete and this soccer athlete and this influencer. I'm like, like great role models. They don't know you at all, right? And you can't just pick up the phone and call them for the most part. <laughs> so you got to find those people that you can have a conversation with and that actually are going to speak like well into your life, people that, that are going to love on you and stuff. 
That's wonderful advice. I never considered that analogy to it, but you're right. Like it's it's your it's like who's who's your who's your people? Like yeah, who are your people exactly. that you're gonna trust? And it's and what I'm also hearing you say is I was just thinking about like, man, you just took what you did in the professional setting and team and just applied it to everyday life. Because yeah. that's exactly what happens in the team setting, right? Is you're like, you know, you, we talk about pulling back the curtain of sports. You literally just pulled back the curtain, said, Hey, <clears throat> I have a dietitian, a strength coach, a performance coach. I have all these people inside the locker room. Okay, how do I recreate that in life? How yeah. do I find those people? And like you said, necessarily it doesn't have to be someone from a certain discipline, but someone that you trust their advice, someone that has perspective, and someone that you can go ultimately say, Hey, just check me and yeah, say, like, Is this exactly. something that works? Yeah, I think that's key for I mean, there's people that I don't want to check me, but you know. You need those people in your life and they're at your seat at your table and you're like, all right, got to humble myself. Yeah. Open to that. So, yeah. Uh, now I want to have some fun with you and just kind of learn a little bit more about your experiences. Uh, just from like international soccer a little bit. Uh, kind of like what, like what was your favorite stadium you played in? Favorite stadium internationally. Um, we took a trip to Portugal in 2017. And that whole trip in general is probably the best place I visited during that year. And probably one of the best countries I've ever been to. If anyone can ever go to Portugal. The one place I didn't get to go to is, you know, they had the big waves, I think, in Nazare, if I'm saying that right. So I didn't get to see that. But there was this old, really, like, old-school stadium that we were playing in because at that time there was a bunch of fires in Portugal. And it was more of a, a tribute to the people there to um, not just give back, but also, like, kind of uplift them in that moment to play them was special. So that was a fun one. I don't remember the name. I'd have to look it up. But definitely playing in Portugal was cool. And that, you see the videos of those waves at that that point in Portugal. It's unreal. Crazy. I don't even know how people surf that. They're, it's like life or death stuff. Right? Uh, life or death. I mean, there's just so much. There's so much like, there's so much that goes into that from like a, what do you, you know, I feel like that is the analogy or like the pinnacle of flow state, of mental pre- preparation, like all of that whole, that whole conglomerate of terms. Oh, yeah. And it's like, and you watch it, it's like, you are tens of stories of high up and it's like <laughs> wow and like you are just a little tiny insect like on that wave if you're watching it from the cliffs yeah the, video, the videos are unreal uh what was your or something like the like most rowdy fans you've been around oh boy people are gonna get frustrated here but the truth is the truth so like the dallas fans always like people in texas <laughs> the banter is good but man are they brutal and they let you hear it and also like you've been to that stadium mm-hmm. they're kind of on top of you right there yeah. so you feel it Salt Lake is like same thing. Like they are, I don't know if it's the altitude or what, but like the adults, the children, they are just screaming at you the entire game. So that's that's pretty rowdy there. Uh, the number one stadium that was the most uncomfortable, but also the coolest experience ever was in Honduras. I think uh, San Pedro Sula, um, and I'm probably butchering the name, but when we went into that stadium, not only was it jam packed and it was hundred degrees, and the grass was like this thick, but it was so loud that I couldn't even talk to the person next to me unless I was screaming. And even then, like your ears are just ringing. And for 90 minutes, it was the loudest place I've ever been in my entire life. I've been to some big concerts too, but like people blowing horns and screaming. And like, it was like this, like most chaotic environment ever to the point where we got in the locker room, like you hear all this outside because we tied it up in the last minute. And everyone in the locker room was like, it was like sensory overload. People had towels in their head. Nobody was talking. And you just want to get out of there as quick as you could. But cool experience. But man, was that a tough place to play? That's wild. You always see, you always see these international stadiums of like these, and you hear the stories of how wild the fans are. But to hear it firsthand from you is just that, that oh, that's cool. Listen, in Panama, I was having beer bottles thrown at my head. And we had their SWAT team, whatever version of this, behind us. And they're like blocking. So now I'm like asking like the coach, like, where am I going to warm these guys up? He's like, this is the one spot, you know, like CONCACAF says it's the warm move right there. So I'm like looking at like the policeman, like over my shoulder, like, hey, do you have my back, you know? And like, they're just like not moving, but they're blocking bottles. Like one almost hit a player. So it's just like, talk about uncomfortable environments. You can't even properly prepare for the game. So there's some, there's some crazy place in the world that just love soccer. Oh. Know, love footy. Kind of like wish I can experience that, you know. Like I'm not saying I want to get hit by a beer bottle, but I'm like, God, that just kind of like sounds like an interesting. It's a cool experience, yeah. Yeah. Especially if you score, you know, then you see the players, like the theatrics that go into it. Sometimes people like, like if you're just watching from Sports Center and you see like, I can't believe he celebrated like that, or like can't believe she's, you know, whatever it might be. There's so much that went into that moment. People just have no idea unless you're like on the ground floor with them. 
of what that means to them or like what they've gone through that whole week. If like the food was bad or like if you just couldn't sleep because night before their fans are just blowing horns at the hotel, which happens for 10 hours. It's like they will do anything to give their team a competitive advantage. So it's just like sports, the stuff that you don't always hear. Um, yeah, crazy memories and I'm thinking about it. See, that's wild. Man, this was this was fun. I was glad we were able to catch up here. I'm glad you uh, made the drive up here from uh, a few hours away. So, Robert, just thank you for taking the time out of your day. Thank you for educating us on a lot of the genetic stuff. That was cool. It was fascinating to really uh, learn about that. I'm still learning that. too, man. It's fun stuff. I'm still learning. And just bringing me a little bit of joy of just kind of sharing some of those stories that, you know, I hope one day I get to uh, experience some of those international stories. So thanks, man. It was, this was fun. Thank yeah, you. Thanks for having me. Man. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Finding Small Wins podcast. If you have enjoyed these conversations as much as I do, hit that subscribe button and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. To join our Finding Small Wins community, head on over to findingsmallwins.com. For more information about me and my journey, please follow me on social media at adam.loyacono. Thanks again for tuning in. And remember, keep finding your small wins. Hey.